What is truth? Seldom black and white, usually complex. The fifth column goes on the inside in search of it. Richard Moore, I think, would be the first person to admit that tragedy can sometimes bring out extraordinary qualities in people. Had he not been blinded by a rubber bullet at the age of ten, maybe he wouldn't have become such an inspirational figure, promoting peace not just in Northern Ireland but throughout the world. As with many of the people I talked to, he grew up in the Cregan estate during the 1960s in a large, poor family. His uncle was shot dead on Bloody Sunday. And he was blinded by army fire three months later. For many, that would have been enough to instil anger and resentment. But instead, he went on to own a successful business, which he then sold to set up a charity, Children in Crossfire, which works in Tanzania, Ethiopia, and the Gambia. I went to、um, Rosemount Primary School, and Rosemount Primary School and Saint Joseph's Secondary School were both on the edge of the Craigan Estate. And right beside the two schools was a, an RUC police barracks. Because of the location of the police barracks on the edge of the estate, it was a target for the IRA and also a target for rioting on a fairly daily basis. And as a result of that, the British Army were brought in to protect the barracks. So you had semi-permanent military installations made out of sandbags, corrugated iron, barbed wire. And the army were inside these huts, looking out through a kind of a porthole. So on the fourth of May, nineteen seventy-two, which was four months after Bloody Sunday, I got out of school as normal. I ran up through the bottom of Saint Joseph's School football pitch, and in doing that, I had to pass one of these army lookout posts on my right-hand side. It was about ten feet away from it. A British soldier fired a rubber bullet. It struck me in the bridge of the nose. I remember I woke up and I was lying on the school canteen table, where my music teacher at the primary school, Mr. Giles Doherty, talking to me and asking me my name, and he got a bit of a shock because he knew me fairly well. I was in his music class, but because of the extent of the injuries, my nose was completely flattened. My eyeballs were down at my cheekbones. You no, know, my fist was completely busted open, so he wasn't able to identify me. So we got a shock when I told him my name. The next thing I remember, I woke up in the ambulance, and at that stage, my daddy and my sister were beside me, and my daddy was holding my hand, and he kept saying, "You'll be okay, Richard. You'll be all right."、Um, that was me really for a couple of days. Initially, they thought that I was going to die from the injuries. Then they thought. I mean, I had brain damage, and the end result was that I would be permanently blind. And I suppose, considering the first two options, then the blindness was almost considered a bonus. It was the best of a bad situation. After that, I spent about two weeks in hospital, during which I thought that I couldn't see because of the bandages on my eyes. And I was a kind of a football fanatic. I loved playing football, like most young boys. So all during the time that I was in hospital, I kept talking about, you know, I can't wait to get these bandages off my eyes. They play football, and I remember joking with a young boy in the bed opposite me, and that must have been very difficult for my family that kept a constant vigil around my bed. I come from a big family. There's twelve children in our house. There's nine boys and three girls, and I was the second youngest. 
And as you can imagine, they were pretty traumatised by what happened to me. And, you know, that was on the back of Bloody Sunday. I mean, Mammy's brother was shot dead on Bloody Sunday, which was January 1972. And then in May 1972, my mother and father's 10-year-old son was blinded. So it must have been very difficult for them. I got out of hospital after two weeks, and about a month after I was shot, my brother Noel took me for a walk, and that's when he told me that I'd lost my right eye. And I would never be able to see again with my left eye. And I accepted it there and then. Literally, I took it in my stride. Until that night, when I went to bed, I was in bed on my own, and uh, uh, I cried myself to sleep. And it's the one and only time that I remember crying about blindness or crying about the incident. And it was that night because I realised for the first time that I was never going to actually see my parents again. And... Uh, I suppose a 10-year-old boy, you don't think about getting a job, you don't think about how you're going to cope with the rest of your life. All as I felt was this enormous sense of loss that I was never going to actually see my parents again. The next day, I got up, and I would always say that day was the first day of the rest of my life as a blind person, and uh, I began to put the pieces of my life back together. I was afraid. I had fear in me. I was afraid of sort of that dark wilderness that sometimes I felt when I went out to the street and couldn't orientate myself. I was afraid of if the military arrived in the street for any reason. And then there was that physical thing of learning more or less to walk again. You don't forget they lift your feet or anything, but you actually, the slightest wee thing, you would trip over it because for some reason you just weren't walking the same and uh, things like that. So... There was a physical thing and there was a emotional thing, I suppose. I felt that I couldn't play football. I felt that I couldn't run in the same way that I ran with my friends. I felt that I couldn't do the same things. But at the same time, pride or stubbornness or something within me that I felt, I don't want people to feel sorry for me and weren't going to see me as a blind person. So I was 10 or 11 years of age and I refused a white stick because I didn't want people to see me as a blind person. Now, the shocking thing about that is that I also think wrapped up in that as a level of prejudice. I didn't want people to see me as, quote, a handicapped person, quote, because my perception of a handicapped person, as I say in quotes, was maybe not a nice one. And it's amazing that that sense of I didn't want to be in that category at that early age, you wonder where that came from. You grew up in a community that was full of bitterness and anger. Mm. Did that not rub off on you? Not in any sort of serious way. I think there was a superficial stuff. You joined in with all your mates. A bomb exploded, you give a cheer up. Didn't know where the bomb went, you didn't know who was hurt by it. But you wouldn't have thought twice of going, yo, a bomb went off. Because you knew it was our side on the attack. You know, you used to sing the songs, you know, say anti-British songs or anti-Queen songs or whatever it might be. I can remember sitting in the swing and at the end of our street, and all of us sitting there, and me singing the song, you know, the Queen come into the bog side, she had an awful fright for 50,000 rebels, we're waiting for a fight. You know, children used to play cowboys and Indians. We played British soldiers and IRA men. And everybody wanted to be an IRA man. 
Nobody wanted to be a British soldier. So it's all there. But for me, it was just children being children. Like, if you're talking about a real in-depth anger or bitterness or resentment towards, say, the British Army, I never had that. And my family didn't seem to have that. Did you ever feel any need then to forgive him? I suppose at some point in my adult life, when you begin to think about the experience of being shot and blinded and how you feel about it, then you try to understand how you're feeling. And I remember I was part of a group that organised a visit of His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, to meet victims in Derry here, about 30 victims. And it was in the process of listening to him that I realised that what he was contextualising and his description of forgiveness or talking about forgiveness or whatever, that that's how I felt. So for me, the emotions that I was feeling was forgiveness itself. I, I never sort of woke up one day and sort of felt, well, I must forgive this soldier. I had forgiven and had moved on. I couldn't imagine life without that sense of forgiveness. Has God ever played a part in this process, do you think? Well, I I think God is a big part of my life, in a sense. How is it that a 10-year-old boy from a big family and a poor family, both my parents were unemployed, living in the circumstances that we're living in, basically in the middle of a war zone, who lost his eyesight in such a traumatic way, was able to cope in the way that I coped. And I boil it down to the power of prayer, really. But not my prayers so much as my mammy's prayers and my daddy's prayers. My parents were two very religious people. And, you know, they went to Mass every day, sometimes twice a day. And that's before I was shot or anything like that. They had great faith. One of my fondest images, and still is today, is my mammy sitting saying her prayers. So... I don't think it was my prayers, certainly, but it was certainly her prayers. So I do believe that faith and God had a big part to play in my life. I have no doubt about that. And I I would always maintain that my forgiveness comes from my parents because I never heard them say an angry word about what happened or about the soldier. And if anybody did say an angry word, they discouraged it. And they tried to encourage us all to think in what I think was the true Christian fashion. You know, I always tell a funny story about I used to wear a, a vest and pinned across his vest here. My mammy had every holy medal that you could think of. And I mean, I had about 40 holy medals pinned to my chest. And when I walked, I rattled. And I used to hit to see people coming in. Everybody come in to give her a holy medal. And I knew as soon as they were out that door, that holy medal is going to be pinned in my vest. And then every night she used to bring me in and stand me beside the kitchen sink. She used to rub my eyes, make the sign of the cross, with every single holy medal that was pinned in my vest. And then she would get out the lurch water and rub my eyes with that. Then the Dunwell water. Then the knock water. Then the St. Anne's oil. And people you know, once joked like I was lucky I didn't drown. But my mommy's prayers were that I would get my eyesight back. And like, as you know now and I know, I never got my eyesight back. But I believe I got a hell of a lot more. And I genuinely believe that my mammy's prayers 
were totally answered in that sense. Forty years on from that early, devastating experience of violence and division, I wondered what he would say to the dissident IRA, who is still causing trouble today. I accepted and always accepted the fact that I lived in a troubled time. I'm just one of the consequences of that violent history that we've had here. But what I don't accept is that it has to happen. And I, do, I am a very happy and contented blind person. But that doesn't make it all right. doesn't make it okay. And I hope that the people involved in violence now stop. And they stop before there's any more Richard Mersh. To hear more of our podcasts and to have your say, visit our website www.thefifthcolumn.co.uk.